You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. What Matters in Love, chaired by Visiting Professor of Philosophy at King's College London, Professor Simon May. What is love and have we got it right? With me to discuss this topic are the movie director and producer Biban Kidron, whose films include Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason, <coughs> and Sex, Death and the Gods, a promising title for our discussion. Biban is also the co-founder of Film Club, an educational charity that uses film to educate young people, and she sits in the House of Lords. Armand Dongour is fellow in classics at Jesus College, Oxford, and author of a great book called The Greeks and the New, as well as the composer of the Ode for London that Boris Johnson (coughs) commissioned for the 2012 Olympics. And Paul Mason uh, is the award-winning culture and digital editor for Channel 4 News, before which he was BBC Newsnight's economics editor. And his books include Why It's Kicking Off Everywhere, which is an account of the Occupy movement and the Arab Spring. Um, And also, I would like to acknowledge um, Luciana from Matter Group, who is now, as you can see, (coughs) drawing away avidly on the board to your right. So let's start with romantic love, which is love that speaks the language of erotic longing, or the language of sex. Biban Kidron... (laughs) <laughs> well, you asked for it. How does romantic love work, do you think? I mean, do we first sexually desire someone and then fall in love with them? Or do we first love them and then sex becomes the privileged expression of that love? Or neither of those? I feel completely unqualified to answer that question. No, you're not. You're um, eminently qualified. <laughs> you're eminently but, qualified. Um, no, but as someone who's been in love, I well, probably both the, ways. The, the, yeah, okay. um, but um, I, th- I think it's interesting. I mean, one of the reasons that I'm here is that I've been spending a lot of time talking about s- both sex and love with young people. And so that's my particular perspective on it right now. And uh, we were joking before. I said I spent the evening with two, two young women, and they said, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, oh, I'm talking about love. And they said, well, just make sure you tell them it's not just acrobatics. Yeah, And I said, okay, I am printing that T-shirt, guys. You know, all young women should have love is not just acrobatics. And so I think my answer, my real answer, and I think you're going to show a clip possibly from from my film, but is that there is some confusion in young people about about where sex sits for them in feeling and whether we've commodified love into sex and whether sex itself has been further commodified into something that is not truly expressive for them. Can I, can I, bring, yeah. can I ask you a question? I mean, yeah. Why, if I, if I put on a hat marked Aristotle, and I don't want to get <laughs> into detail now, but I would ask you why you think sex is any more important to a love relationship, to expressing that bond or to cementing it, than great conversation or than any activity pursued in common which, as it were, expresses that oneness. I mean, why do we, which we obviously have done for at least 150 years, why do we privilege sex in this way, and are we right to do that? 
I think we are right to do it. I mean, you know, that it's, but, but that doesn't mean to say it is the whole story. And I think this is the problem. You know, when we listen to the poem, we listen to, to the complexity of context, of where you come from, of who you are, of where you're going, and how you're on a journey with someone. Now, that has a physical component, and that has a, that has a lot of other components. And I, I don't want to say that sex is not central. Mm. I mean, I, I refuse to say sex is not central, but I, I, I think that the, the way it's currently being privileged is, is it's getting, uh, it's, it's lacking context. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at right. in some of the conversations. Well, should we, should we see Eban's yeah. clip now? <laughs> Big tits, team, squirt. I don't even Hentai. Oh, is that cartoon? Cartoon <laughs> pornography. Then you've got MILF, which is mom I'd like to fuck. Then Asian. Anal. Then you've got Big Dick. Celebrity, which I never know if it's real or not. Amateur, so like a yeah. virgin. Yeah. <clears throat> Gay, which is something yeah. Ben goes on. Yeah, of course, yeah. You'd sort of try out a girl and get a perfect image of what you've watched on the internet. So you're not thinking about the girl, you're thinking about the porn. Yeah. That's what it's like. And obviously, you'd want her to be exactly like the one you saw on the internet. And if she's not, then she's not the right one. Go away, I'll move on to the next girl. It is great, and I'm highly thankful for whoever made these websites, and that they're free. But, in other senses, it's ruined the whole sense of love. Like, people get addicted on drugs, you try drugs for the first time, you love it, then you get addicted to it, and it ruins the whole sense of drugs. It's like that, but with love. You go at you watch it, and you see, oh yeah, this is nice, this is nice. You keep on doing it, and then you see a girl, you're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna do that to her. Do it to her, she gets called a slag for it. A boy really likes her, but doesn't want to go out with her because she's called a slag. So what's happened there? Just just, before I turn to Paul, Beeman, mm. do you want to comment briefly on that? Well, I, it was very difficult to choose exactly what to show, but I think the thing that I wanted to just look at was that there, there's no risk in those relationships. And I think one of the big things about love is, is vulnerability. And, and one of the big overcomings of intimacy, you know, is about vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And in both those clips, you know, the ones that had never met, you know, there was... Although it lacked were, risk. But they were taking a big step. They were taking a big yeah. step, but they were safe because I was there, yeah? If yes. I hadn't been there, that True. might have been less safe. Uh, and then the young boy who's sort of geared to this ever more extreme porn, as you would see, is also not risking himself right. in that relationship. J just before turning to Paul, would anyone in the audience like to comment on, on this or on the question about the relationship between sex and love? Sorry, my name's Tamara. I was... Uh, um, 
very moved by the or upset by the piece on porn because I think porn is having a huge effect on people's ability to have love. And one of the things that we, funny enough, talk about on the way up here is how most young girls now post-pubescent all shave their pubic hairs mm. to make themselves pre-pubescent because it's part mm. of the whole influence of porn. And I think that's also another step away from intimacy. So I think it's a very important point to be talking about. Thank you very much. Um, Paul, Paul Mason, we think of romantic lovers as inhabiting this cocoon insulated from the world. You know, they notice nothing. They are, as it were, in their oneness alone. But what happens to romantic love at times of economic and political crisis. I mean, when the world breaks in, as it were, on the lovers. And you've, you've made a film about today's Greece mm. post the mm. Euro, Euro crisis. I mean, how does love get affected by, for example, a loss of income mm. or loss of social status? Well, um, so my only um, qualification to talk about this subject is this. But it, it is... Um, <clears throat> 2011 was the, 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 the year of resistance in Greece when we, and, and many other countries when we had tent camps everywhere. And the first thing I wanted to say is that what you notice about tent camps is that um, th there was one on Syntagma Square in Greece. Uh, I've covered others, you know, Gezi Park in Turkey. But you always find <clears throat> a rewriting of gender relationships. That's the first thing. Because these young people who, who come from this, and, the, and to put it bluntly, the men are very manly and the, the women are very girly. That is the Southern European culture is that. Um, it wasn't tw 20 years ago, but it is now. And, and they, first of all, have to renegotiate that. You don't see a lot of macho behaviour. You don't see a lot of hyperfeminized behaviour among women in tent camps. That's the first thing. Then 2012 came along, and <clears throat> we started to use, those of us who covered the, the crisis, the word anime, that, that is the breakup of society, uh, the, the hopelessness, the, the, the loss of, of, um, of resistance. And during the anime period, um, <clears throat> in fact, it's not me who's made the film, two of my colleagues who, who were freelancers, Greek freelancers, uh, Theopis Skalatos and Kostas Kelegis, came to me and said, we want to make a film called Love in the Time of Crisis about what is happening, because you can see all this on the street, you can see the poverty, you can't see what's happening in relationships. Yeah. And <clears throat> I mean, what we're about to see is bits of, bits of that, but, and it's not the main bit. The main bit is, well, what is the summary? Uh, wh what is the summary? Apart from we know things like um, abortions have increased, uh, we know that divorces have increased, infidelity, as we'll hear, has increased, um, supply of prostitution has increased, um, <clears throat> among women who would describe themselves as housewives, uh, etc. But these are, these are just the headlines, because the, the really interesting thing is Greek society is very outwardly dis based on display, especially for working-class Greek people. The first thing when you're chatting somebody up is, what do you do? Well, it's 56% youth unemployment. So what happens, uh, and, and what, when we interviewed people in depth, what they said was, you don't, nobody flirts anymore. You can't make that initial connection. You do all the other stuff, all the display. But when it comes down to it, there's a sort of absence of a dis discussion. If you then add to that people living with their parents, so you get the rise of the one-hour hotel room um, in, in Athens and um, Patras, you get, <clears throat> um, you know, almost a sort of atrophying of, of this, what we would describe as normal Western sort of display-based flirting-based youth culture. Did you find that when romantic love was getting undermined by the crisis, that people were turning to other sorts of love, like friendship love and, and so on? I mean, family 
Well, I think we'll hear uh, and we'll talk about it, 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 the interesting thing with modern Greece is that everybody is aware of the ancient Greek thing that they had several words for love. And these, all, what these words describe are things that we all experience. Um, agape, you know, is, is, the, is the fellow feeling, uh, uh, selfless love. And right. <clears throat> philia is attraction. And I think they have a kind of vocabulary to understand that because of this and the, the awareness of it. That, that probably I wasn't aware that the Anglo-Saxon society had. But is the answer to the question, so to speak, yes or no? I mean, are they turning to other forms of love? Or, yeah, or yeah, yes, I think they are. And, and, the, and, and above all, it is things like, so godmothers. So, so in the film, one of, one of the people we interview, she's unhappy, she's unemployed, her relationship's broken up. <laughs> what she does is she sacks her godmother and decides to have a new godmother who is a new spirit guide in the world. And, and we see this almost, this relationship develop because, because that's all there is, because the men are, you know, men are useless a lot, but these, at this particular time, right. the men are quite useless to them. Amor, <clears throat> turning yeah. from... <laughs> modern Greece to ancient Greece, what do you think we can learn from, what different perspectives can ancient Greek love cast on our modern quagmire? <laughs> well, the ancient Greeks had an understanding that their love came in all shapes and forms. Uh, so they had the most bawdy sexual humour, the comedies of Aristophanes. Uh, they had much higher forms of understanding uh, desire and love. Um, they, you know, they had all the human emotions and when they even said, I don't want to take sex out of it, they would have agreed that uh, physiology, the basic instinct to want to connect to another person, you know, must be behind it in some way. Now, of course, the philosophers then come along and give a rather different perspective. And I don't think that that is one that should necessarily guide our view as to how the ancient Greeks saw love in general. Mm. But Plato, who is you know, by far the most influential in this respect, wrote an absolutely wonderful dialogue, the Symposium. And in the Symposium, the Symposium in ancient Greece was a drinking party. Um, and Symposium nowadays is a conversation. <laughs> it could be a drinking party as well. But um, the, uh, in this Symposium of Plato, they decide not to drink but to discuss love, and they come up with lots of different stories about what love is, and the word that is central to that dialogue is eros, eros in, in Greek. Um, and uh, I just want to mention one of the participants, who's Aristophanes, the comic poet, who tells a story, and the story is that once upon a time, human beings ha were roly-poly creatures with four arms and four legs, and they, as a result, could run very fast and they could enjoy themselves hermaphroditically. So they had both sets of sexual organs in this one creature. And as a result, they were so self-satisfied <coughs> that they stopped worshipping the gods. And so Zeus, the chief of the Greek gods, decided he'd punish the human race, as it then was, and he split them in half. As a result of which... We now only have two legs and two arms, but we're desperate to find the other bit that we were once connected to. So this is bang in the middle of the, the dialogue, the symposium, this idea that somehow love is finding, and this is what Aristophanes says in the dialogue, finding one's other half. Mm. Now, the beauty of 
the dialogue is that Socrates, who then goes on to talk about what love really is, rejects this. And in a nutshell, the reason he rejects this idea as a de depiction of love is that it doesn't allow for psychological growth. Love is not simply about being self-satisfied because you've found your other half. And I mean, it was interesting in, in Beaven's film, you know, the, the, the guy who's watching the perfect model on the screen, in a sense, is a deeply narcissistic thing. This is inhuman perfection. And you talk about shaving pubic hair. That idea that, that you've got to be without those bits. You know, it's just like John Ruskin in the last century who couldn't consummate his marriage because he discovered his wife had hair. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but yeah. so uh, what Plato then goes on to say, and, and it's been debated endlessly, is what it actually means, this dialogue, but I think that broadly we, we know, is that love actually is being able to generate creativity in another person. Okay. So, I mean, in a way, he dismisses the, the purely right. physical side and he, you know, he brings up what we then come to call platonic love, love which doesn't involve sex, but actually he says it starts with... But it's none that is highly erotic. Well, it starts... It is, it is a different kind of erotics, but it starts with the love of an individual and then it moves beyond that. Yeah. But it ends up being almost, uh, almost saying in Plato, and as I, as I say, he's not a typical ancient Greek, very untypical, but it ends up almost as if he's saying love is about educating someone younger than yourself. And that, that is the lover and beloved relationship. Um, and that is the true expression of love, being able to bring up creatively some other person with whom you're in contact. Um, and so I was once lecturing on Plato's Symposium, and um, where Plato says you know, it's not about telling somebody else the answers, but it's about interacting with them and drawing out their ideas, yeah. and that is an expression of love. And I said, unfortunately, off the cuff, which, which makes one realise one should never say off the cuff things in lectures. So this lecture is not an expression of, of love, but my tutorials are. <laughs> and there was a kind of hushed silence. Mm -hmm. who, is this, who is this pervert who's lecturing us? But, anyway, yeah. but I mean, in a sense, it is interesting how, how Oxford yes. tutorials very much are about That's interacting right. <clears throat> and trying to get other people to think. Mm. and to grow psychologically. Education and creativity is central to platonic ideas about love. Yeah. Let's open this up now to a wider discussion. Questions, please? Comments? Uh, that's fascinating. I mean, so many different things were said, but I was with a group of young people last week um, doing a workshop. Um, there were young journalists, and that's what I do. And three of them said something which I was very struck by, that we became so much better than you guys, meaning old guys like me, <coughs> at sex. We're so much better at sex now than you were. Because you felt shame, you were... But we don't understand love. Mm. So I just put that out. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, but is, is there any basis on which that's true? I, I mean, there's a lot... Of, you're, you're just talking about stuff here. Does anybody have kind of any data actually more... Numbers with less names. Well, what, what, yes. what data would you like? Yeah. The, the, well, what, there what are data. Would you like? I think, I mean... <coughs> they, what are the questions to which you'd like data? Well, I no. guess the question is, what's the point? What are you trying to say? Okay, I've got some data. You've got some data. There is data. Well, there is data. <coughs> okay. Well, 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 let me just answer the, the point, since I'm supposed to be... 
we, we've, we've been discussing, at, you know, as, as much depth as, this will, as we've got time for, the relationship between sex and love. So the question is, you know, we've, obviously our culture <coughs> sees the two as very closely related, and the question to which the discussion so far in the film clips have been devoted is, what exactly is the relationship between sex and love? How important is sex leading to love? How important is sex as an expression of love? Now, you know, we, we haven't got millions of samples. I, I think, yeah, but no, there is. Hang on. Uh, okay. It depends. Hang on. Hang on, hang on. There is, there's quite a lot of science, and it's, it is something. So, for example, I don't have all the stats with me, but there was a fantastic review out of... Yeah, hang on, hang on. <laughs> uh, out of Chicago, where they, looked, they tried to find something that they felt was <coughs> relatively new. So they looked at multi multiple partner... Sex. I'm not saying it's relatively new in history, but, but you know, whether it be something that was mainstream. And one of the things that they found was that there was a huge, you know, I think it was a 58%, something in the 50-somethings, increase of multiple partner sex. And most of it was done at the behest of one's known lover, but was unwanted. So it sort of came into a really interesting area of you know, doing sex for your lover that your lover has seen in another context, but that is neither rape nor wanted. And so that was a very particularly acute uh, piece of research, I thought, because it dealt with the sort of the how people experience it. I, th I think that's, that's one of the things. You know, the other thing that I would say is actually around women and uh, girls and girls' bodies. And there is emerging research. I can't quote any specific thing. I've read an awful lot about this. Um, but since, I've, since I made the film, I've been in about 80, 90 schools. And I do this thing I was explaining to Paul earlier, that I always give a blank piece of paper. I say, look, this could be very personal. You may want to write something on a piece of paper, you know, that, um, that you don't want to say in public. And I have literally hundreds of pieces of paper. Yeah, it's not very scientific, but the big obsession of girls is about how their bodies should relate to the pornified body of the public image of woman. Yeah? So I think that there are things that are scientific in there, but it is definitely something that is emerging, new technology, new levels of access, and therefore the science comes a little bit after the observation. The gentleman here in the second row. Desai wrote a book mm. called Twilight of Love, mm. which was about the relationship between Ivan Turgenev and the actress Pauline Viardot. And Turgenev followed Viardot and her husband around Europe and probably never consummated his love for mm. her in any way. It was probably never a physical relationship between them. And in this book, which is like a travel log, um, uh, Desai contrasts this sort of a uh, menage a trois in which Turgenev's living with, with his beloved in Paris at the footsteps of Pigalle and makes the point that probably this conception of romantic love mm. died at the moment when sex became commercialised. Interesting. And I wonder whether that... I mean, what, what's happened? I mean, I see Lucia's put romantic love at the top, but then it starts with, I privileged sex, and... Yeah. then this discussion's been about sex, actually. Mm. And I wonder whether Indeed, yeah. there's a moment at which romantic love got lost, and was it because of the commercialisation of sex? Do you want to address that? I think the, the, the shock of the new, for, say, my generation, 50-something, mm. is twofold. One, of, one is the Im impact of 
pornography on young men and women's behaviour, which there's loads of, quanti loads of quantitative research on. So the majority of women, young women, will report that sexual acts take place but, um, but that young men do without requesting, that, that, they didn't, that people in my generation didn't know you could do. Okay, so, and it's not very funny for them when it happens. But that's a fact, okay? Now, the bigger one, however, I think the, 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 I'm, not so, I'm not so obsessed with the impact of porn on, on, on people's sexuality. I'm more interested, actually, in this problem that you refer to, Jasmine, about the, actually, you know, women's rising freedom allows mm. a lot of women in Western societies to behave as a lot of men did, say, during the Second World War. They can have a lot of partners, serially. And... And it means, therefore, being young, this is what we found in Greece, is, is even more than it ever was about having a lot of partners one after the other. Mm. Um, and, but then, because you can, and because there's no need to enter into any contract whatsoever, even the most basic emotional one, the question then becomes, at what point do, do you start looking for, quotes, love? Mm. And that's where they, the shock of the new to me is how, how much they lack the vocabulary of that, because it isn't in yeah. any of this. There's a gentleman down the third row, just behind. Okay, um, I'm Ian Hutchison, I'm a surgeon and I uh, want to talk a little bit about the chemistry that goes on. Uh, but Simon, I want to criticise you. Uh, you started this talk, which was about love, and we haven't really focused on love, we've focused on, porno focused on pornography, and Armand... Um, talked most about love, which is a very important aspect. Pornography is a problem. What's happening to our young people is a problem. Um, Paul was about to say the Greeks had several words for, for love. Because, of course, love means very different things. Um, and what love means, uh, if we look at it in its purest form, is all of this. Sex, um, uh, conversation, stimulation. If we're looking at it at an atavistic level, at a, uh, at a level of the, the brain, sex, orgasm, produces endorphins and enkephalins. And I'm sure all the people in the audience know that sometimes when you have an orgasm, the enkephalins and endorphins aren't as good as some other times when you have the orgasm. And then also there's the business of smell and of pheromones, that, that there are many things that attract us to other people so let's forget about pornography and let's go back to love. Mm. There are many, many things that attract us to other people. Um, first of all, we're attracted by appearance. We want to talk to people who look attractive. We may be intimidated about doing that. But then when we talk to those attractive people, we get bored by them mm. sometimes because they are boring. And we find ourselves, we find ourselves talking to somebody who we're forced to talk to who's less attractive, who turns out to be fasc fascinating. Mm. So love is about everything. It's not about, and sometimes people in long relationships have an accident. They become paralyzed. They can't have sex. But the, the couple stay together because of love, because okay. of something that's built. So love is about sex, of course. It's within it. But it's also without sex, too. Of course. Oh, but that was not denied. Uh, Stephen? Steve Barber, you, you had a question. I was just going to ask you about, isn't um, unconsummated uh, uh, love like one of the greatest sources of creativity? In, mm. For example, um, Martin, <laughs> Indeed. Absolutely. It's erotic love. 
Do you, anyone want to address that? Well, can I just say, I mean, both the, these last two points um, made me wonder in relation to what we saw from the earlier speakers here, whether it is in fact something new in this world and possible that we can separate off the purely physiological pleasure from all the other things that have, for thousands and perhaps millions of years, been involved in the notion of love. And if that's the case, then something really quite radical is going on. And I wonder, actually, whether, in fact, say, that the young man who enjoys his pornography, and that's his best sexual experience, as far as he's concerned, and he'll never replicate it with a human being because human beings are imperfect, will, at some stage, then fall in love with someone, and they may never consummate, they may never have sex, he may still watch porn all his life. Maybe this is something new that's going to be happening. He, you, know, uh, you saw the, the, the two young boys, the hug they gave was you know, an incredibly erotic, physiological response. They weren't having sex. Now, they might hug for the rest of their lives and talk to each other on the internet. So new forms of love, I suspect, may well be coming into the world. I mean, yeah. I don't know what science. Which new forms? New forms which involve a complete separation, which the ancients wouldn't have understood, of the purely physiological mechanisms with all the endorphins and encephalins and the other things that will encourage people to connect. Well, I mean, friendship love, which we haven't discussed, mm. but I did allude to at the beginning, yeah. surely is just such a love. Yeah, much I mean, underrated these days. I mean, I mean, I think you 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 yeah. raise an interesting point about romantic love because we know it goes back to medieval, you know, uh, mini singers and the rest of it. <clears throat> but if you're in a situation where the you know the bourgeois family obliged men to go through these rituals of romantic love and to mm. convince themselves, you know, Heinrich Heine is writing his his poetry. There's the most beautiful poetry about being in love. What, what is the opportunity for those young guys now to do that? Because they don't have to actually go through any of, almost any of the typically bourgeois rituals, mm. marriage, mm. courtship. They just don't. Mm. So, so what, I mean, I, was, I, do, I do think that, that we've got this separation and it's, and it's a forever. It's as forever as birth control. So it's mm. no re reversing yeah. back out of it. Except One of the reasons mm. that yeah. I actually put both clips on was because mm. that I feel that the, that, that second is very ambivalent and actually if you see the whole journey of it it's really touching and the whole audience sort of goes oh you know when they mm. finally are but what's interesting about those two young men is they have to work a great deal harder to have a meaningful relationship mm. because they don't act they they've spent a year getting to know each other so some of the other things of love and friendship and desire <coughs> are actually at play in their relationship in a way that ryan with his kind of rocks off porn he's 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 not even getting close to what is interesting about those two boys is that they have both written to me separately since and said it completely transformed their lives meeting of yeah? Course, yeah and that now they have a deeper love even though they spend most of their time apart. And I think that that's something that we have to just hold on to. And just before we close, does anyone want to venture a definition of what love actually is and aims at? Either in the audience or on the panel. I mean, love of, love of any sort. It could include love of nature, uh, love of one's children and so on. Creative connectedness. Yeah. <laughs> any other... Any other when I think of love, I think of respect. 
I think of, you know, if it's for an individual, I think of respect for that individual, whether that be, you know, their opinions or, or, or how they make you feel. Also, if you're thinking about objects, you think of a respect for that object or an animal or a tree or, I, I don't know, you know. Right. It, it's that, a respect. That's a virtue of love. But what, what does love actually aim at? It's a very, very hard question. I, want, I, want well, to, I will. I want, I'm happy want, to tell you. I'm happy to tell you, but I'm supposed to, to be evoking questions. I wanted to quote what you were talking about because I think it's even mm. better than what you said, which is, uh, which is I, the, the literal quote from Aristophanes in the symposium is, the pair are lost in an amazement of love and friendship and intimacy and would not be out of each other's sight, even for a moment. These are people who passed their entire lives together. They could not explain what they desire of each other. Mm. That, that, to me, that's the one that overworked that family... Uh, you know, man, woman, man, man, you know, sexual, non-sexual, it's, that is always there yeah. in all of them. Yeah. Am I right? But yes, you are. But, but of course, Plato goes on to say that love actually transcends that. Yeah. Well, Plato okay. goes on to say, and I think this might be an answer to the question, that love is the desire perpetually to possess the, the beautiful in another person or in an object. So it could be love for nature, love for uh, music. Sorry, it it's not to possess, to, to, to generate. Create. No, to possess. Tokos. Generation in the beautiful. No. Create. No, we have it. We've definitely got an argument. It is to possess, and the possession inspires generation. But love itself aims at the possession of beauty. Well, I have to take mm. a bet with you afterwards. No, no, no. Uh, but he goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I fear we have to bring this to a close. So can I thank our speakers thank very thank much you. and you for your questions. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening.